Well, good morning, everyone. As we are here today, let me go ahead and have you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. As we have been doing and as we perhaps will be doing what seems like for eternity, but I'm quite convinced it won't be eternity, we're studying Hebrews. And we are within shouting distance now of the end of Hebrews chapter 11. We're not at the end. Like I said, we're within shouting distance, though. This morning, we're going to find ourselves at verses 30 and 31. We have just completed a longer section that dealt with issues from the life of Moses. And as a whole, the section we've now, up to this point, covered, if my counting is correct, about 11 specific examples of faith. 11 specific delineations of faith. One of them was more generic, the fact that we can believe in God creating everything is the first, but then after that we get into individual names. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, Moses himself, and then the nation of Israel and their ability to walk through the Red Sea when God parted it. All of these issues, all of these individuals, the collective focus has been specific historical incidents where by faith these things occurred. By faith this occurred. And we spent a great deal of time, obviously, going through each one of these. In fact, when it comes down to Abraham and the life of Moses, we spent extended time talking about them because these two foundational figures from the Old Testament, were a centerpiece of the author's arguments. And all of these individuals are held up as faith so that those of us who are walking by faith can recognize we have the same resources at our disposal these men and women had at their disposal. We have the ability to walk as they walked. And the next, this morning, this is sort of a transition because we're going to see the last two Distinct examples where they're set off by themselves. Look at verse 32. We're not covering verse 32 this morning, but you see a transition in how he talks about things. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets, and on and on he goes. And then he gives all these examples of different things that occurred. It's almost as though the writer is recognizing, look, I'm going through and I'm laying out you example after example after example, but the catalog is endless. The Old Testament is so full of them, there's even more. And so what's going to happen after we get through the two verses we're covering this morning is it's going to be more of a collective, big picture, fast forward sort of highlight reel of look what this happened. Look at these examples. So this morning, we're coming to the end of when he's taking the distinct time to talk about incident after incident, and we're going to see two last examples that are distinctly put forward here. One of them is the nation of Israel and Joshua, and the other is Rahab, but they both involve the same historical event. It's the conquering of the city of Jericho. 
So this morning, as we've been doing, we're going back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this morning, if you want to, you can go ahead and open up the book of Joshua. So hold your place in Hebrew 11. I'm just giving you a heads up. It'll save you some time if you turn to the book of Joshua, because inevitably we're going to look at some things from the book of Joshua, since that's where we get the historical events. So I'm going to read the actual text we're studying Then we're going to look at some historical context to put the pieces in place. And I think we'll be able to fully understand these two examples that God's putting in front of us that are, again, supposed to inspire us to be able to do what God's called us to do. So the two verses we're actually studying, Hebrews 11, 30 and 31, I'll go ahead and read. By faith. The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Verse 31, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Now again, when you're just reading Hebrews chapter 11, you see the Red Sea parted, this occurs, then you see the walls of Jericho falling down. But between verses 29 and 30, in the biblical chronology, there's actually a 40-year history. And the 40-year history is not a high note as when the Israelites looked and the walls of water were standing up as we looked at last week. And and they took the steps of faith and they walked through the sea on dry ground. Those 40 years were really a, a disaster from a historical standpoint. Now, I did this. I hope you have a pencil or something, because I've got you in Hebrews 11 and in Joshua. But we're going to look back over into Hebrews chapter 3. Because understand, all this is flowing in context. He's writing to a Jewish audience, so they are well aware of their history. These are Jewish individuals who are now worshiping the Messiah. But the writer of Hebrews has already talked about what occurred during that 40-year period. This 40-year period that is between verses 29 and 30 of Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, I'm going to read a little bit of an extended period. It says this, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's talking about the generation that walked through the Red Sea. They were grumblers. They were complainers. Even though they had seen the miracles of God, they hardened their hearts. And as a result, God made it clear they would never set foot in the promised land. They wandered for 40 years until they all died off. Look a little bit farther down in verse 3. 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Verse 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses 
And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. In other words, while no doubt there were at least some individuals who had genuine saving faith in that generation that walked through the Red Sea, by and large, they spent 40 years under the chastisement of the Lord for their rebellion. As the Old Testament makes clear and as Hebrews makes clear, these individuals would not enter the promised land. God had promised this land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses was leading the Israelites out. In fact, Moses, in his own steps, had made sure by his sin that he wasn't able to enter the promised land. But all of the adults were going to die and their children were going to enter the promised land. For time's sake, I won't read it. But there were a couple of big exceptions. Numbers 14, verses 20 and 24, God's pronouncement of how things were going to be. God specifically singles out Caleb as a man of faith. Deuteronomy 1, verses 37 and 38, God specifically singles out Joshua as a man of faith. But when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, and we're dealing with the city of Jericho, understand the entire generation that was alive in Hebrews 11:29, except for Joshua and Caleb, were dead. Their kids were alive. In fact, in sort of an ironic thing, they were saying, well, our kids are going to die in the desert. And God said, well, actually, I'll, I'll take your kids into the promised land. You're going to die in the desert. I'll prove that I can be faithful. So verse 30 is a contrast but it's also a continuation of a theme. These individuals that were walking around the walls of Jericho had seen some of what God had done in their parents' generation, but they had also seen the judgment of God on their ancestors. And they knew why. Why? Because God said, go into the land, and their ancestors balked. So verse 30 is a contrast and a picture of triumph. And it all required faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. I think as I thought through this, as I was trying to decide how how I would present this material, I think this historical event, kind of like the parting of the Red Sea, almost numbs us because we're so familiar with it. I don't remember much from Sunday school, but I remember Noah's Ark. I remember the Red Sea. I remember the walls of Jericho. That's a pretty good story. VeggieTales, if VeggieTales picks it up, you know. I mean, this is really, this is top-shelf biblical material. (laughs) But we can lose sight of the wonderment of what actually occurred because of our familiarity with it. Now, I mentioned that the historical account is found in the book of Joshua, and we're going to get there. Yeah, I should pass out Bible placeholders because we're going to spend some time in numbers as well. Because Numbers 13 and 14 provide some context. I won't necessarily have you turn there, but I'm going to provide some context and I'll try and tie it all together. What was the precipitating event for the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years? It was this. God had said, go and take the land, I'll give it to you. 
And as you may recall, in fact, go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter 13. I'm sorry, I do want to read some of this to you. And again, as I often do, I lay all these various streams out, and I hope to be able to bring them together in an understandable way. But you go back to the Israelite generation that wandered in the desert for 40 years. The precipitating event was this. God said, go and take the land. I'll give it to you. It's yours. I'm going to be on your side. You go, and I'll give it to you. And at one point, they decided to send spies into the land. As you recall, they sent spies who went, and the spies looked all through the land, and the spies brought back a report. In Numbers chapter 13, just find your way down to verse 28, just in front of that, they made it clear the land is everything God said it was. Boy, it's perfect land. It's productive land. It's wonderful land. But Numbers 13, verse 28, says this. This is the report of the spies. Nevertheless, The people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Now, here's where Caleb had faith. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Here's the point. The land that they were going into, which includes where Jericho was, terrified them. Because the people were big, and they were strong, and the cities were fortified. They were more militarized. And again, remember in that first generation, this is a bunch of slaves that just came out. They weren't military. So they were terrified. Look a little farther down, Numbers 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and people wept that night. Verse 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Again, Joshua and Caleb tried to stem the tide, but it was no use. When they saw how big and ferocious the people looked, Their hearts melted. So God had said, go, you go conquer the land. Caleb and Joshua had said, look, God's on our side, let's go. But the people were terrified because the people who lived in that land were big, and they looked mean, and they were militarized, and their cities were fortified. Everything about it looked disastrous. Some of them, by our standards, were probably what we would consider giant. And these big, giant people in fortified cities could not be easily overtaken, particularly by a people that were not trained in war. Some societies had been more warriors for years. They had training, and their kids were trained, and training, and training, and training. That wasn't the nation of Israel. Now, that brings us to Joshua. That brings us to verse 30. But in the book of Joshua, turn to Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. 
God did not want to repeat it, I don't believe. God wanted his people to respond in faith. By this point, Moses is dead. That entire generation is dead. God starts. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Then he gives some boundaries. Verse 5, no one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So this is God's charge. You go. Now's the time. Let's go. Something interesting, though, in verse 6. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, so you may have success wherever you may go. Just for good measure, verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is God preparing Joshua to lead all the people. Joshua was ready. He had his marching orders. God telling him, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It's hard to know how much of that was perhaps something had creeped into Joshua's heart that was different than 40 years ago. Joshua may have been completely comfortable. Either way, God was making it clear, I'm going to take care of you. You be strong, you be courageous, I'm going to do my part. I'm with you wherever you go. Now, Joshua chapter 2, therefore, that's all the preceding stuff that tells Joshua, here's what's going to happen. Joshua 2 begins to give the account that historically provides the basis of what we're seeing in Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31. And in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua, and this isn't quite a recreation of history, but Joshua sent out a couple of spies. And we'll come back to this a little bit in verse 31 when we talk about Rahab. But the spies got into Jericho, and Rahab the prostitute hid them. But they had time to make their report. And they brought back a report that was radically different. The peoples hadn't necessarily changed. It was the same ethnic groups that lived in the land, the same ethnic groups that 40 years ago had terrified the Israelites. But look down at Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Because Rahab expressing her heart shows something of what was different. Verse 8. Now before they lay down, talking about the spies, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. These spies saw what they saw. Jericho was fortified, all of those things. But they came back and they gave a different type of report. Look down to verse 23. 
Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Now the stage is set at this point for a great military victory. You've got a terrified populace, and the Israelites this time are motivated. Joshua is leading. The spies come back with a good report that says, hey, things are on our side. In chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Joshua, God putting them in a position geographically and in, in their heart spiritually, so to speak. They had to all be circumcised because this generation wasn't circumcised. God took care of all those things in Joshua 3, 4, and 5. And they're in the position and they're ready for the battle. Now, Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 makes it clear Jericho was also ready. It's like a movie playing out here. One side is moving into position. Jericho was ready. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Now, historically... They tell us that this was a very strategic town because to get into the land of Canaan, you had to go through Jericho. That's why it was a fortified city. It wasn't necessarily a giant city, but militarily it was very significant. It stopped people from being able to raid the land because they couldn't get through. And they had supplies of water and food so they could wait people out. If you know anything about old battle history, a lot of times that's what happened with sieges. People would just put an army around and they would just wait you out and eventually people would starve and you could conquer them that way. But Jericho was ready. They might have been scared, but they were secure. They had the walls around them. They were philosophically in their mind. They were contented with the fact of, okay, we're just hunkered down. This is where we are. Jericho was a militarized city. They might have been scared of the Israelites. They might have been scared of the Israelites' God, but they were ready militarily as much as they could be. So now we have the battle set. God told the people to go. The people were ready. They're where they need to be. And yet God threw, pardon the expression, a little bit of a curveball, which is what Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about, which required faith. If you're making a movie at this point, well, Israel has to do something. They have to come up with a way to get down the wall. So maybe they get catapults. Or maybe siege works. Or maybe they build up something to get over the walls. Or maybe they have some way to breach the walls. As I thought through this, and forgive me, I couldn't help but thinking of like the Lord of the Rings battle sequences where all the people are behind the walls, and how do we get past the walls? Do we blow it up? What do we do? God had a little bit of a different plan. Look at Joshua 6, verses 2 to 5. God lays out his battle plan. Here's how you're going to do it. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city. All the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry in seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a loud, long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. This is where we have to step back from our familiarity and try and put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites. They're standing before a fortified city with big walls. Walls big enough that some people lived in the walls. 
So this isn't like some little fence around my house where you lean over and you can push it over because of a rotted post. This is really a fortified city. It really was not possible to get there. And God's battle plan is we're going to do a walk. No weapons, no anything else. You're going to walk around the city once and you're going to be done for the day. You're going to do that for six days. Then the last day you're going to walk around it seven times. And then you're going to blow a trumpet and then you're going to yell and you're going to win. That had to have sounded a little crazy. I'm sorry. We're fighting against people that are militarily astute. Perhaps they're bigger than we are. You've got a city that's walled up. It's designed for the express purpose of keeping invaders out. And our battle plan is to go on a walkathon. Day after day. Might have even been embarrassing at some point. It's like, are we ever going to do anything? Are we just going to keep walking? But here's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. When God said to do this, and even though it might not have sounded normal, guess what they did? By faith, they obeyed. They did it. They did exactly what God told them to do. They looked to Joshua. Joshua, what's the plan? Joshua relayed what God said, and the people did it. Okay. I won't read all of it, but if you kept reading in Joshua chapter 6, you would find that. They walked around the camp, and they did it for six days. And then on the seventh day, and they did exactly what God said, and the trumpets blared, and they shouted. Joshua chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. So the people shouted, and priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Which is all summarized succinctly in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Unlike their faithless ancestors who Hebrews chapter 3 pointed out wandered in the wilderness under God's judgment for 40 years, Joshua and this generation exercised faith. They believed God. And even though when God told them to do something in a way that must have seemed extraordinary and unorthodox, they did not hesitate. God said to do it. They did exactly what God said. That is faith in action. You think about how many times God makes it clear to us we need to do something, and we can think of a thousand reasons why that must not be the right way to do it. I'm sure that could have happened here. It's pure speculation on my part, but I'm sure they could have thought there's got to be a better way. I mean, we're just walking. What, what good is this? Actually, they weren't talking while they were walking. They were silent. But perhaps at night they're wondering, maybe there's another way. Who knows? The fact remains, they exercised faith, and God acted. Faith in action. Even perhaps when they didn't understand everything, what they did have was a certainty. This is what God said. I'm going to follow it. And they were rewarded for their faith. And verse 31, I think, naturally fits well with this because within the context of this overarching campaign, what might be the most unexpected example of faith in the entire chapter is found. And we're dealing with Rahab. Verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. 
again, the book of Joshua has the account. doesn't necessarily explain how it is that the spies found Rahab, but in the sovereignty of God they did. And we've already read a portion of the scripture, and we'll read it again, that expresses something of Rahab's heart. But there are a lot of, I think, extraordinary things about this simple verse in verse 31. First, it is clear Rahab had genuine faith. By faith, Rahab. I don't think I wrote it down in my notes. I might have had it at another point. Rahab is also mentioned in the book of James for her faith. Faith that acted. So she had genuine faith. What makes it extraordinary is look what kind of person she had been. The harlot. One of the things that is always affirming to me about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't reinvent history to tell it in a better way. Rahab was just a prostitute. That was it. She sold her body for sex for money. If you think about it today, even today, a prostitute is looked on with either a mix of disgust or pity. And there's a reason prostitution is called the world's oldest profession, because as far as it seems, it's been around forever. It's been a part of the sinfulness of man for thousands and thousands of years. Let me tell you, the word harlot is not a positive term. Again, time would would keep me from going into all of it, but in the book of Revelation, when it's painting a picture, at one point it's talking about the harlot, the harlot. There's no way to dress up these words to make it any nicer. Rahab, the harlot. That's what she was. That's what she had been. Making matters worse, she was a Gentile, a Canaanite. The Canaanites, none of those people were virtuous. They were wicked and vile, sinners against God. Here's the point. Even in the Old Testament, a picture of the universal availability of the gospel was on display. Because this simple prostitute from amongst an unclean people came to believe in the one true God. Even with her sin, even with her background, her pedigree, whatever you want to call it, she was not beyond the reach of God's saving mercy. Joshua 2, again, puts out the larger account. And for time's sake, I won't read it all. But when Rahab hid the two spies, it wasn't a casual thing. She was putting her life at risk, perhaps the life of her entire family. At one point, people had seen the spies with Rahab. The king sent word to Rahab, hey, we're the... We're the bad guys we saw. We're the spies. But she did not turn them over. She protected them. Why would a prostitute from the city of Jericho bother to do that? This prostitute, because of what she had heard about God, had become a believer. Go back to verse 11. You know, Rahab of chapter 2, excuse me, Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. Rahab talked about how terrified the people were. 
verse 11, she continues that theme, Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. In our English Bibles, at least my version, there's a semicolon. What comes after the semicolon is not the testimony of the people, it's the testimony of Rahab. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. All of the things that Rahab had heard about God were likely secondhand. She had probably never seen one of the Hebrew scriptures. At least a portion of the Bible was written down by that point somewhere, but it likely had never seen the light of day in a Gentile land. But she had heard a testimony of what God had been doing, and that was enough for her to recognize He really is God. And she acted in faith on what she knew. She knew far less about God than most human beings today. And yet what she knew convicted her to place her faith in that God. Casting her lot with the God of Israel and his people could have cost her her life. She could have died. Had the spies been discovered, had it been found out what she did with conclusive proof, she probably would have been killed. But she feared the one true God more than she feared the king, as is the testimony of many in this great hall of faith. And because of her faith and acting on faith, she saved not only her life, but the life of her family as well. Verse 31 says this, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. You know, Rahab only had one request of the spies. Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 said this, Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The spies agreed. They obviously, they told her to do certain things to mark out her house. And they said, if you tell, if you give away who we are, then all bets are off. But she followed through. And after the walls came down and Jericho and its inhabitants were completely destroyed, Rahab and her household were spared. Joshua 6, 22 to 23. 21 has the destruction Verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. Verse 23, so the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. Everyone else in the city of Jericho is termed by Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 as those who were disobedient think they're classified that way for a couple of reasons. First, like everybody else ever born, they're sinners. But second, and most significantly, and this really, as I was reading some commentators, is really this thought crystallized in my mind. Everybody in the city had the exact same amount of revelation as Rahab had. You think about that. They knew exactly as much about God as she did. They heard the same things. They knew the same truths. They knew all of the same stories. Whatever revelation Rahab had, everybody else in her city apparently had the same revelation. 
Yet where Rahab, by faith, humbled herself to begin to serve the one true God, everyone else continued with what they were doing. That looks just like the world we live in today. You see, people that have the same amount of revelation, certainly much more revelation than Rahab had, they have the same revelation, and yet they go about their lives and push God aside. This harlot's life was transformed. Interestingly enough, not only was she saved, and again, the the book of James, I must have not put the reference in because I knew I was going to have a shortness of time, but James points out her as an example of an act of faith. But in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, there's the lineage of Jesus, the genealogy. Chapter 5 says this, and it's tracing down the ancestors of David. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. Rahab not only had been a Gentile harlot, but her life was transformed. She believed in the one true God, and God even gave her a husband from amongst the nation of Israel. And she was a direct ancestor of King David. And ultimately, she was an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. She was and remains a powerful example of the transforming power of faith. Even though there was a town where every person was marked for destruction because of her faith, she was saved. Again, remember why these accounts are here. Eventually we'll get to Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us this is a great cloud of witnesses that are supposed to enable us to lay aside sin that so easily entangles us and to allow us to run with endurance the race that God sets before us. And these are the same historical event with these two examples a victorious people who finally were listening to God, doing it God's way. God said, do it this way. They believed, and God gave them the victory. And a lowly prostitute transformed by faith. Again, each one of us has unique circumstances we're dealing with. We have unique backgrounds. We have unique challenges. And as we go through a chapter like this, at each stopping point, we have to look at our own lives and say, okay, Lord, how do I apply this to my life? For some of you, it may be that you're facing circumstances where the Christian thing to do doesn't look expedient. The Christian approach, what you know you have to do, doesn't seem like it could be successful. Because you look all around you and people are doing it the world's way and they're prospering and they're having success. By faith, do it God's way. Just like the nation of Israel. They probably couldn't have read a military primer that says just keep walking and blow some trumpets and yell. But if God says this is how you live, you live that way no matter what. And a thought occurred to me with Rahab. You know, some in this room, were saved as children. And praise the Lord for that. And some in this room, like myself, were saved as adults and lived wicked lifestyles before salvation. 
And there are all manner of us in all sorts of stages in between. Understand this. If you have life and breath, you are not damaged goods in God's eyes. He can still use you for what he's put you on this earth for. You may not walk around the walls of a city and watch them fall down. You may not be involved in military intrigue of hiding spies. God may have called you just to be faithful in the job where you are. Maybe God wanted just a little bit of light of the gospel in that pagan place where you work where it's hard to get up and go to work every day. Understand God can use you. No matter your circumstances, no matter your background, just be faithful where God has placed you. God still uses sinners saved by faith. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we marvel at your power. Lord, more than anything, we marvel that you would save us. Lord, from a human perspective, certainly Rahab was not somebody that was worthy to be saved. She lived a horrible life rejecting you, the vilest of sinners, and yet, Lord, you redeemed her. I pray, Lord, that we, each one of us in this room, can understand that even if the word harlot is not beside our name, we're as wicked as Rahab. Our sin is just as vile as Rahab's, and you showed astounding mercy to save us. Lord, help us to be obedient. Help us to be faithful. Lord, as we're going to read in chapter 12, there is sin all around us that so easily entangles us. Lord, help us use these examples of faith to avoid those minefields. And Lord, the race you've put in front of us does require endurance. It requires a long-term perspective. And we live in a society where everything comes in 15-second increments for our satisfaction and enjoyment. Lord, help us use these examples of faith to endure. Ultimately, I pray, Lord, that because of our study of these men and women of faith, we will become greater examples of faith in the place you've planted us. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.